podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Thursday, the 11th of November, brought to you by epillindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from. For example, if you're an English expat and would like to access the BBC iPlayer or ITV Hub, but are told when attempting to log on that they're available only in the UK. You can set your Liberty Shield VPN to the UK, trick the geoblocker, and keep your data safe while enjoying your programs. LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLPOD, E-P-L-P-O-D, to get 50% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally... Do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Right, folks. You wouldn't know that was the fifth time I tried to do that intro, would you? The magic of editing. I want to begin today with a quick apology. So yesterday, when talking about the situation at Paris Saint-Germain with the women's team, I made a, a glib joke about women in competition and it was pointed out to me it could be taken the wrong way that it could be construed as me punching down or being misogynistic which was in no way my intention and if you've listened to this show or me on other shows you'll know my stance on those things it was in no way an attempt by me to punch down at women in sport I'm a massive proponent of women in sport it was just a throwaway joke so if I caused any offence, I, I do apologise, uh, but it was not my intention to cause any offence. It was just a bit of a joke because there's only ever that I can find ever been two examples of somebody hiring somebody else to take out a competitor in this manner. And they've both involved women. It was just a joke. So uh, I do hope anybody who took offence will accept my apologies. Right, folks, we start today with Steven Gerrard being appointed as the new Aston Villa manager. I am surprised that he made the decision to leave Rangers mid-season. I didn't think that was in his character. Rangers fans have not reacted well. They're, they're not really all that bothered about him going. It's the timing of it. The fact that two weeks ago, when asked about his future, he responded in a manner that suggested he was going to stay. Now, he never actually said... He was definitely going to stay, but he did dismiss speculation linking him with a move away. Uh, This is a step up, regardless of what Rangers fans want to tell you about their club being bigger than Villa. Scottish football is at an all-time low. Rangers' finances are in the toilet again because they've overspent trying to back Gerrard. And he probably looked at the situation and thought, realistically, where does this get me? 
where does winning a title that's the equivalent of League One get me? And can I win it if I don't have the money to outspend everybody? One trophy in three years is not great. It is an unbeaten league season, though, which is very impressive. But his record in the Cups was dreadful. And obviously his record in Europe was good. Not great, but good. St. Johnston won two trophies last season. You know, that's how bad Rangers' record in Europe, in the Cups has been, rather. St. Johnston last season won more Cups than Gerard won in his three years. So it's a bit of an, un- an unfinished job. You would have liked to have seen him stay and try and go back to back. I think that's far more of a measure in a league like that than a one-off title. But I can understand why he's made the move. Number one, it's it's much closer to his family. His family's still in Liverpool. Glasgow's a long old trek, so he's not coming home every evening. From Birmingham, he probably could drive up and down. It's not that far. He'll see more of his family, be closer to home. That's a big plus. He'll earn a lot more money. That's a big plus. And he will be competing in a far more competitive league at a far higher standard. And that's the biggest plus of all. Because Gerard wants the Liverpool job someday. And this is where he proves himself. He wasn't going to prove anything with Rangers. Liverpool were not going to appoint the manager of Rangers. But they might appoint the manager of Aston Villa if he proves himself worthy of the job. Now, I did see a bad take from a journalist yesterday. I won't name him, uh, but he works for one of the major newspapers. Uh, Gerard succeeding Klopp is inevitable and remains so even if it doesn't go well for him at Villa. This is garbage. If it doesn't go well for him at Villa, he has no chance of becoming Liverpool manager. I don't think he'll be considered for, for Klopp's replacement anyway. I'd be very surprised if he was because there will just be a lot of better candidates. There just will. There's far better candidates now. You know, you look about and you look through Europe and you can immediately come up with 30 or 40 names of managers who at this moment in time the 11th of November 2021, are better managers with better CVs who would be better candidates for the Liverpool job. If you judge him on being the Rangers manager and not being Steven Gerrard, if you take his name out of the situation and you just look at what he's done as a manager, he doesn't crack the top 40 of potential replacements for Klopp. The only way he's high on your list is if you allow your heart to make the decision and not your head. And Fenway Sports Group won't do that. Now, people have said, oh, but the fan pressure will be so much. They won't care. They're in America. They're not going to listen. They literally won't care. Because here's what they'll know. The blowback from not appointing him would be a fraction of the blowback from it going wrong and them having to sack him. 
they already sacked Kenny Dalglish, rightly so. It had come time for him to move on and Liverpool to move on. He'd done a brilliant job as caretaker and shouldn't have gotten the job as permanent manager. But the time had come to end that relationship. Now, they didn't handle it in the best possible way. That's the criticism I'd level at them. But it was the right decision to move on from Kenny. But they took a lot of flack for that. And Gerard, despite, I don't believe, being on the same level as Kenny in terms of being a Liverpool legend, just because Kenny, for me, is the greatest Liverpool player ever, and he'd been a great manager in the 80s, and he'd come back to take over at a very, very dark time for the club when Hodgson had been there. For me, Kenny's on a different level to Gerard. Gerard was a was a great player, no question. But he left and went to play for somebody else. So I don't really have that affinity to him. Now, most people who are born in the nineties and two thousands will have that affinity because he's the best player that Liverpool had during their lives. He's the one they grew up watching and adoring. And obviously local fans have a much stronger connection to him as well because he's one of them. He's a local lad who made it made it into the first team. So I think from younger fans and, you know, fans in their maybe early 30s or whatever and local fans, if they were to try and sack Stevie, I think that would be a just a catastrophic event for Liverpool. That would just be... I mean, the apocalypse, basically. It would be easier to just not appoint him and not have to deal with any of it. If he makes a strong enough case, like if he gets Aston Villa into the Champions League and does well in the Champions League and wins a couple of domestic cups and has them competing, then he'll have made a case. Then he will rocket up your list of potential replacements. But based on what he's done at Rangers, he just isn't even one to consider. I mean, you wouldn't appoint the guy who won the Swedish League or the Norwegian League or, you know, name your third-tier league. You wouldn't appoint any of them. So why would you appoint Gerrard, other than the fact that his name is Steven Gerrard, which cannot be taken into consideration because we've seen what's happened with Lampard. Ollie's not the same level of legend, wasn't the same level of player, but we've, we're seeing what's happened with him. Now, of course, it can work at times. You look at Pep, you look at Zidane. Of course, it can work. But Pep took over arguably the most promising group of young players ever with Messi. Iniesta, Busquets, Pedro, you know, as well as the established Xavi and Puyol. Zidane inherited, well, a team that had just won the Champions League a couple of years beforehand and was stacked from top to bottom with world-class players. In 2024, Liverpool will be an ageing team potentially in need of a slight reboot 
And maybe not even that. Maybe they could be in need of a full rebuild. So it will be a much bigger task. There's also the fact that Zidane and Guardiola were already internally in the club. Pep at that La Masia, a running Barca B. Um, Zidane was had been working in the academy and was managing the, the B team as well there So at Real Madrid. So it, there's, that's different paths to the job. Gerard would be coming in from outside. He wouldn't have already been working within the structure. He wouldn't have been involved in any of the day-to-day activities the way Zidane for, for certain was. So I just don't think it's one that needs to be talked about. Yeah, there's you know there's lots of people talking about it, but they're only talking about it because he's Steven Gerrard. They're not talking about it because he's a great manager or like because he suits the same you know path as Klopp. Let's see what he does at Aston Villa. If he does badly at Aston Villa, he's not going to get the job. So that statement by that journalist is nonsensical. Uh, I'm rambling now, so I'm going to move on. Uh, We do have some Twitter questions we're going to get to before we get into our season reviews. So from Nick Turner, 13, uh, Robson versus Gerrard. Gerrard was a more talented player. Gerrard was a better all-round player. Robson was a better central midfielder. Robson, like Gerrard, never quite got given the right team around him. Had some great teammates. He played with Norman Whiteside. He played with Paul McGrath. But United never quite got it right in the 80s. uh, As Liverpool never quite got it right. Bar one season in the 2000s. When Gerrard was at his best. Um, Like Robson. Gerrard almost won a title. Right at the tail end of his career. Um. Yeah, Robson, better central midfielder. Gerrard, better overall player. But Gerrard's best games were not in central midfield. Gerrard's best came on the right of midfield or in the role behind Fernando Torres. Uh, that's where we saw the very best at Stephen, of Stephen Gerrard. Uh, KOR9, your all-time flop Liverpool 11. Uh, I'll go Chris Kirkland in goal. Um... Dejan Lovren at centre-back. with Christian Ziga at left-back. Next to Lovren, we'll put Torben Picnic, who came with a big reputation and was fairly awful while at the club. At right-back, Glenn Johnson. Dreadful, dreadful signing. Uh, right wing, right wing. We'll have to put Lazar Markovic. Left wing. Let me think. I'm tempted to put. O- I'll go Ivan Leonardson on the right and Markovic on the left. Leonardson came from Wimbledon for a big chunk of money at the time. And was just largely disastrous. Um, Central midfield. I've done Stuart Stuart Downing dirty. I'll go Downing left wing. 
Markovic right wing will play Leonardson in central midfield. And next to him, I'm going to put Paul Ince. Not that Paul Ince was especially bad for Liverpool, but he was brought in to be the final piece in a title-winning puzzle for a large sum of money. It didn't work. And he left for, I think, a million quid, having arrived for seven million. So I'll go Paul Ince. Up front, Balotelli has to be won. And I will go with Andy Carroll. Andy Carroll. Yeah, so Kirkland, Johnson, Picnic, Lovren, Ziga, Markovic, Leonardson, Ince, Downing, Balotelli and Carroll. That's what I'll go with. Though I've left Adam Lalana out, and he really should be in because he was a flop. Uh, but he did have four good months, so you know, some people want to load him and applaud him. Um, AMK two eight eight nine. Your Liverpool starting eleven made up of the nationalities that were the starting eleven. in the 2005 Champions League final. The players you pick have to be current players. So, for example, Dudek was in goals. You have to pick a Polish goalkeeper. You can't pick... You also can't pick English players in Liverpool squad to replace Gerrard or Carragher. They must come from other clubs. Okay, I get you. Uh, please include the subs used. Okay. Right then. Uh... 2005. Hmm. I'm already fretting over who to pick instead of Steve Finnan. Um, I'll go Dragowski of Fiorentina as the goalkeeper instead of Dudek. Uh, Steve Finnan at right back, so it has to be an Irish right back. I mean, Seamus Coleman or, or Matt Doherty are the are the only ones. But I'll go with I'll go with Seamus Coleman. Jimmy Traore started on the at left back, so we need a French left back. I'll go Theo Hernandez. Um, Carragher was one of the centre backs, so it has to be an English centre back. I'll go. Esri Konza, um, Sammy. Now this is going to be tough because I genuinely don't know many in the Finnish squad. Uh, let me think. God, I don't know any of these. Um, I'm going to go with Daniel O'Shaughnessy. Purely because he's got an Irish name, he's of Irish blood. Uh, his father's a good man from Galway, so we'll go with him. Uh, Daniel O'Shaughnessy, currently playing for Karlsruhe in Germany, or set, set to join them, rather, in January, uh, is at HJK Helsinki. So I'll go for him, Daniel O'Shaughnessy. Uh, O'Shaughnessy, as we would say, but O'Shaughnessy, as he probably says, 
um, in in Swit- in Finland rather. Uh, that's the the tough positions out of the way. So Alonso and Gerrard in central midfield. I'll go Bellingham for Gerrard. I'll go. I mean, it would have been Busquets up until recently, but obviously he's not quite the player he was. I'll go Fabian Ruiz instead of Alonso. Uh, Luis Garcia, so a, a Spanish wide man, I will go with Danny Almo. Yeah, I'll go Danny Almo. Um, a Norwegian left winger. I mean, I could play Odegaard there, so I'll go Odegaard. Uh, a Czech striker, so Patrick Schick. An Aussie attacker. God. Uh, a stri- <laughs> Let's see. I remember Daniel Arzani being tagged as this massive prospect when City picked him up but he went to Celtic I think he had some injuries but he wasn't very good Um, I'm struggling with picking an Aussie I'll go with Arzani because I, I genuinely haven't a, a breeze yeah this is the spirit of Mark Faduka um, they did have some good players over the years. I was a big fan of Mark Schwarzer. Obviously, Tim Cahill and Lucas Neal were, were long-time Premier League players. Uh, Mark Bresciano was always a favourite of mine as well. Um, I'll, I'll go with Daniel Arzani, which I'm not, not overly keen on. Um, Liverpool subs that night. Scott Carson was, was the backup goalkeeper. So to pick an English goalkeeper, I will go with Nick Pope. Uh, Josemi was the backup right back that night. So to pick a Spanish right back. I do quite like Audrey Azola. I know it didn't work from Real Madrid, but I'll go with him. Uh, Didi Hamann came off the bench. So I need a German midfielder. We'll go Joshua Kimmich. Uh, Antonio Nunes, a Spanish winger. I'll go with... Mikhail Yarzabal. Igor Bishkan, a Croatian midfielder. I'll go with... I'll go with Kovacic. Um, Gibral Cisse, French striker. <laughs> Kylian Mbappe. And Vladimir Schmitzer, another Czech. Uh, I'll go with Adam Hlozek. Uh, as a Czech wide man who can play through the middle a little bit. So, yeah, that's what, what I'd say. I'd say that the bench is much stronger than the starting 11 with the Irish, Finnish and Australian uh, outings letting us down here. But uh, overall, not a bad team. Overall, not a bad team. And they're the three places you'd probably look to make make some change, you know. Right. Hope that answers that one. So we'll move on. Uh, Oh, extra credit if you can pick a current Spanish manager to lead us to glory. Um, I like Valverde. I I know he's not for everybody. I know the football's not for everybody, but I do like Valverde, so I'll go for him. Um, De Langstar, how do you account 
for players like Dimitri Payet, who exploded at a much later age than what would be expected, how could someone of, it, of with his level of talent slip through the cracks and end up at West Ham? Apologies if this is very uh, insulting to any Hammers listening. Can you think of any other examples of this? And on the topic of Payet, why do you think his career never took off? So I think with Dimitri Payet, he always... He needed to be the guy. He needed a team built around him, in part to do his running, in part so that he got plenty of the ball. It's similar enough to Jack Grealish. If you look at his career prior to West Ham, when he was at Marseille first time around, he didn't really have that gravitas, that sort of pull that the whole team kind of played for him. Very, very talented player. But it took coming to England. I think there's also a bit more... I think there's a bit more space. Like, I know English football is played at a very hectic tempo, but intelligent players, of which he is one, do tend to find a bit more space in English games. You look at a manager like Bielsa and that man-to-man thing... That's not completely uncommon around Europe for managers to go man-to-man. So I do think there's a little bit of that. He, the extra time on the ball, the, everything going through him. He was so, so good for them. And I think he made a, a huge mistake in deciding to leave. I really do. Like, he's done well at Marseille since going back, but I don't think he's hit the level that he has or that he did in that 15-16 season for uh, for West Ham. I don't think he's ever hit that at Marseille. The best season he had was the 1920 season, which obviously got cut short by COVID. Um, and he missed 12 games. But I still don't think he was at the level he was that season. He had been building towards a really good season, though. That's worth pointing out. Like, he'd been at Lille. He had a brilliant 2012-2013 season at Lille. He went to Marseille. And he was good, don't get me wrong. He was good. But when he went to West Ham... Everything just seemed to come off from everything. He seemed to have, maybe it was a confidence thing with him, maybe having had a couple of good seasons, going to West Ham, doing well early, trying a couple of things that came off. I don't know what it was, but there was just something about the circumstances at West Ham that it all just clicked into gear for him. And he was, he was ridiculously good that year. Now, he wasn't quite as good the next season, but there was a lot of distractions and a lot of talk about him going. So you can kind of understand that. But that first season he was, he was absolutely outstanding. What did what did West Ham pay for him? 10.7 million. And they got 25 million for him when he left. That's pretty impressive, to be fair. For a season and a half, 
I don't know what it was. There has been a couple of other players like that, though, who've come into the Premier League later on in their careers, and it's just really suited them. Like, Gianfranco Zola was a very good player in Italy, but he was never seen as one of the three or four or five best players in the league. In the Premier League, he was one of the three or four or five best players. And I would still maintain that he is Chelsea's in Chelsea's best ever eleven. Whether he's the best ever player or not, I, I don't know. You'd have to really sit down and go over over different seasons. But, you know, Zola flourished in the Premier League late in his career at a level where he hadn't really in Serie A. Now, some of that is the style of play. And that's the other thing with, with um, Payet. Maybe that quicker, more intense style of play suited him. A player who did play a lot on instinct and could unlock defences at full speed rather than that kind of slowed down more laboured game you'll also often find around Europe um, I would say God I'm looking at Zola's see I didn't realise how good Zola's first two seasons at Parma were 22 and 51 28-51 does make sense, him, Esprit and Brawling as that front three. But I still don't think he was as highly regarded as he was in the Premier League. Now that may just be an, you know, a bias towards the English League, getting more coverage of it, the more access to that media. Mm. Anyway, don't want to get too hung up on anything today. Um, Stephen Smith sent me questions as well. Uh, as Newcastle embark on their journey, which players would be most more appropriate in the summer window, both in cost and style? James Tarkovsky or Michael Keane? Uh, James Tarkovsky. So he's better on the ball than Keane, and I think he's a more reliable defender than Keane. And Eddie Howe will want to be progressive from the back. We saw what happened when Keane went to Everton and tried to play it from the back. It was a disaster. But remember, Tarkovsky, before he went to, to Burnley, was at Brentford and played some games in midfield and was very comfortable there. I think Tarkovsky's a better fit. He'd also cost less because he had a contract in the summer. Uh, Max Ahrens or Tariq Lamptey? I prefer Ahrens. Lamptey's more explosive, but I think Ahrens is a better player. He's also more durable. Dominic Solanke or Divock Origi? Um... Divock Origi's proven in the Premier League. Dominic Slanky's not. Phil Coutinho or Aaron Ramsey? I'd rather gamble on Coutinho because I know how great he can be in the Premier League. Aaron Ramsey was inconsistent in the Premier League, had like one great season and then one good run of form. He's also far more injury prone. Luis Suarez or Edinson Cavani? Suarez. Always Suarez. Always Suarez. Jesse Lingard or Ross Barkley? Ross Barkley's a better player. Jesse Lingard might suit Eddie Howe more. Vardy or Lacazette? Lacazette. Lacazette. Playing just off Callum Wilson, I think Lacazette could be really, really effective. Lucas Moura or Adama Traore? Oh. 
both of them tend to run towards corner flags a lot. Uh, head down, get your feet moving. I will say Adama Traore, younger. He's younger, so I think that makes more sense. Uh, James Milner or Juan Mata? Juan Mata. Uh, Idrissa Gay or Jordan Henderson? Henderson. Henderson for a couple of reasons. Idrissa Gay is much better defensively, a much better ball winner. Henderson's better on the ball. I think Eddie Howe would value on the ball rather than ball winning. So I'll go Henderson there. Um, so that's that. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we've got to get through five Premier League teams and their season so far. So I'll see you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, uh, continuing with this week's theme of a season so far review, uh, we move on to Liverpool. Now, there's no real reason for me to spend a whole bunch of time on the next three, uh, because I've talked about them a lot throughout the season so far. Obviously, I also do regular Liverpool podcasts on AnfieldIndex.com and Anfield Index Pro, so you can get more thoughts on them there. Um Liverpool are fourth in the league, which, you know, in itself is a little bit disappointing, but it is 11 games and it's not like they're 10 points off top. They're three points behind West Ham. Sorry, they're one point behind West Ham and Manchester City. They're four points behind Chelsea. They've lost one game. That was last time out to West Ham. They deserve to lose that game. But they've beaten Norwich. They've beaten Burnley. They drew with Chelsea. They beat Leeds. They beat Palace. They drew with Brentford. They drew with City. They hammered Watford. They hammered Manchester United. They drew with Brighton. And they lost to West Ham. The West Ham result had been coming. If you'd seen the Brentford and Brighton games, you knew that they were susceptible to certain things and certain counterattacks when their defensive minded midfielders or their midfielders didn't do the defensive work is what I should say Liverpool are yet to win a game in the Premier League when they have kept a clean sheet that it's it in itself is very concerning um, they've only won the games the six games they've kept clean sheets in the six games or sorry the five games they've conceded goals in they have drawn or lost as was the case at West Ham so that's a little bit concerning. Obviously, in the summer, not enough done. Brought in Kanate. He has looked good in the early going, but they needed more. They needed another one in attack. They needed at least one in midfield uh, with Ginny Wijnaldum leaving. So that was poor from them, not to address that, because it's been blatantly obvious this season how much they're missing Wijnaldum. His, his intelligence, his positioning, his defensive nous, his instincts, his ball retention, all of it is a massive blow. Uh, Ginny Wijnaldum was it was a good litmus test to find out if people knew anything about football or not. Asked them about Ginny Wijnaldum, if they said he was useless for Liverpool, you knew they were a fool. Um, Ginny Wijnaldum was massively important. After Fabinho, the second best and second most important midfielder of the Jurgen Klopp era at Liverpool, absolutely key to everything they, they achieved. 
and a huge blow and negligent not to replace him. That's why they find themselves in fourth. If they'd had somebody like him or, you know, just him uh, in their midfield, they wouldn't be getting run through on a weekly basis. It's that simple, really. They would not be getting run through on a weekly basis. But if you go back and watch their games this season, you will see at times in most of their games, somebody gallop through the middle of the Liverpool midfield on the ball and not get touched. Even Dwight McNeil, not even Dwight McNeil, Dwight McNeil did it for Burnley. Burnley barely attacked in the game. Dwight McNeil sauntered through the midfield a couple of times. Conor Gallagher did it in the Crystal Palace game. Um, Watford and Manchester United didn't offer anything of the sort, of course, but in the Brighton game, the Brentford game, and then the West Ham game, it happened over and over and over again. It had also happened against AC Milan, against Porto, and away to Atletico Madrid. So those were all concerning things that they need to address. I think overall they'll be fairly happy with where they sit. You know, they are well positioned. Um, they're heavily reliant on Salah for goals, but Sadio Mane and Bobby Firmino looking more like their old selves this season. Diogo Jota in impressive form in the early weeks of the season, struggling of late. Naby Keita has started the season very well, but there is some concern over the form of certain players, in particular their captain, who's been, well, he's been atrocious this season. But Salah is currently top of the Premier League in terms of goals and assists, um, which, you know, goes some way to telling you what he's been up to this season. As long as Salah stays fit, Liverpool will be in the mix. They're getting a little bit more from Van Dijk as the weeks go by. He looks more and more like himself, but that defence doesn't look like it used to. And in part, it's because he's not fully at his best. Andy Robertson has been quite poor this season. Joel Matip's been a mixed bag. He's had some very good games. He's had some very bad games. But the midfield is leaving them far too exposed. And that's something Klopp needs to address and needs to address soon. They have Arsenal at home next. Arsenal come in on an eight-game unbeaten run. Now, it means little or nothing, just as Liverpool's ten-game unbeaten run to start the season meant. Um... But this will be a test for the Reds. They need to bounce back. They need to find some sort of response. Arsenal aren't a team that carry the ball through the midfield a lot. But they do counter-attack well. And they do have intelligent playmakers who can find good pockets of space. Emile Smith-Rowe is excellent at it. Odegaard is very good at it if he plays. And obviously, Bakayo Saka is a big threat as well. So... Questions, questions, questions for Jurgen Klopp. But a lot of positivity, a lot of good things happening. And you're not going to be all that bothered if you're fourth after 11 games. If you're fourth after 27, 28 games, then you might be a little bit concerned. But certainly not now. Uh, we'll move on. Manchester City, second in the table. Some disappointing results, some disappointing and flat performances. Very, very flat on the opening day in a 1-0 defeat to Spurs, but bounced back by hammering Norwich and then Arsenal 5-0 in both games. But then their attack seemed to get a bit clogged, and they weren't impressive against Leicester. They were very poor against Southampton. 
They beat Chelsea 1-0 and they were impressive on the day. A 2-2 draw at Anfield, I think they were a little bit disappointed in that one because they dominated the first half and went one up. Uh, no, they didn't go one up. Liverpool went one up. Excuse me. They dominated the first half. Mane scored, then Foden scored, then Salah scored, then De Bruyne scored. That's what happened. Um, they did dominate the first half. They were by far the better team and really should have been a couple up going in at the break. The positive for them was coming back, having been behind, but they will feel like they let that one get away. Like They had an opportunity in that first half to really ram home an advantage and put Liverpool on notice, and they didn't do it. They beat Burnley 2-0, which obviously is disappointing considering they normally beat them 5-0. But more disappointing will be the fact that Burnley had a couple of really good chances and played quite well against them. They did look really good against Brighton. They were atrocious against Crystal Palace. Now, Americ Laporte gets the blame for the defeat. Wolf Zaha made an absolute show of him, it must be said. But more of the blame should go to Ruben Diaz. Ruben Diaz is the one who leaves Laporte in bad situations both times. Um, Really, really poor performance. But they looked exceptionally good against Manchester United at the weekend. Now, United aren't very good at the moment, so maybe you don't write, don't read too much into that. But what I will say is, they have looked better without Jack Grealish in the team. Jack Grealish was bought in the summer for £100 million. And we were told at the time he's being bought to play in midfield. He's been bought to play as a number eight. Well, he got one game there against Spurs. It was a disaster. And it was scrapped thereafter. He played pretty well against Norwich and pretty well against Arsenal. But against Leicester, Southampton, Chelsea, Liverpool, Burnley and Crystal Palace, he was a non-event. He was decent in the Brighton game. He was awful in some of those games. Awful. And he was dropped for the United game. And they just looked much better without him. Much, much better without him. And whether it's that he slows them down quite a bit. When Grealish gets the ball, the ball tends to stop. Whereas with Gundogan, with Silva, with Foden, with De Bruyne, when they get the ball, the ball keeps moving. Grealish stops the ball and he wants to create something. He doesn't seem to have bought into what Pep does as yet. He also limits their movement because when City were great last season and when they were against United, you basically have whichever back four he puts out. Normally, he goes with Walker right back and say it with left back. Diaz and Laporte have been the first choice centre-backs this season. I do think that's what he wants. And then he goes De Bruyne, Rodri, Gundogan, and then say Bernardo Silva, Foden, and Gabriel Jesus. Let's just say that's the the team he puts out. Canseo doesn't play left-back. He plays in midfield. And he moves into midfield, and he largely takes up an inside-left kind of role, but he has a lot of license to move. 
but he rarely gets beyond his front line. He he tends to play closer to Rodri than he does the front line. Laporte slides across. Diaz is the central one, and Walker tucks in as a right side centre back. So it's a back three with Kense- with Rodri in front, and then Canseo kind of roaming a little bit on the left. De Bruyne roaming a little bit on the right, or De Bruyne playing to the middle and Bernardo Silva roaming a bit on the right. But the rest of them, Gundogan, Foden, Gabriel Jesus and and De Bruyne or Silva, or De Bruyne and Silva, will often find themselves just constantly moving between positions. You'll see Gabriel Jesus as the nine. Next thing he's playing is the left side at eight. Bernardo Silva is the right side at eight, but all of a sudden he's the left winger. De Bruyne is here, there and everywhere. Foden pops up in pockets of space and nobody can find him. And the ball never stops moving as the men move and you get just this wonderful carousel of football. And it doesn't work with Grealish. Whether he doesn't have the speed of thought to play that way, whether he's just not been indoctrined long enough to play that way, I don't know. But... They are they are not as good a team with Jack Grealish. They look significantly worse with Jack Grealish in the team than they do without him. And there's things he does brilliantly, but they're not really suited to how City play. And he's certainly not on the same same wavelength as most of his teammates. Now he's still creating his his low opportunity chances for the people. You know, he creates chances in volume, but he doesn't create high-quality chances in anywhere close to the type of volume that would mandate spending £100 million on him. Thus far this season, he has been a disappointment. Very like Aston Villa, he, he cannot cope outside of the Aston Villa bubble where everything went through him, and without him, pass it to Jack and hope for the best doesn't really work. Uh, Guy is telling me that TalkSport are reporting that Frank Lampard to Norwich is done. We'll get to Norwich so we can have a chat about that then. Uh, I don't like that one. Don't like that appointment at all. But if they go like if they go down, I think it makes which, with, in fairness, they are going to. So that then it does make more sense because Lampard is a Championship caliber manager, and I think he can do quite well there. Uh, it's just the Premier League's a step too far from right now. Um, with City, I think there are some problems they need to iron out, but they ironed them out brilliantly last season. And they did it in this manner. Canseo stepping into midfield with Rodri and the rest of them going into this carousel of movement, of ball movement, of intelligent play, and of everybody chipping chipping in with goals. Their performance against Manchester United was an absolute clinic in how to play without a striker. It was phenomenal. And Rodri put on a clinic in how to be a holding midfield player. There's no more enjoyable team to watch than them when it all clicks. When it doesn't click and it hasn't with Grealish this season, they're very boring. They're very, very boring and predictable. Uh, Manchester United, I don't even know where to start with this crowd this season. It has been 
poor, let's say. They hammered Leeds on the opening day and they looked great. Pogba had four assists. They won 5-1. Oli was at the wheel. They were top of the league. It was great. They drew at Southampton, a game they should have lost. Armstrong missed a 1v1 that he should have scored. They beat Wolves 1-0. They should have lost that game. Wolves hammered them. Wolves absolutely pinned them to the wall and hammered them. They beat Newcastle 4-1, but for an hour, that was a very close game. and United weren't good. They beat West Ham 2-1. Mark Noble missed the last-minute penalty. So through five games, they've got four wins and a draw. And if you look at it from the outside, you might think, oh, they're doing quite well. But if you've actually watched the games, you're thinking they played well once and they've been really poor for most of the other four games. West Ham, they were decent in. But they were they were awful for that first hour against Newcastle. And they were awful in the Southampton Wolves games. Then they lose at home 1-0 to Villa. Then they draw 1-1 with Everton, and Everton were missing a number of key players. Leicester beat them 4-2. Liverpool hammered them 5-0 and then mocked them for 45 minutes. They beat Spurs 3-0, and that was a really good performance, but there were mitigating circumstances. And then City just toyed with them. Like... I've watched the game a second time, largely because I was just in awe of, of the way City played. But when you really slow it down and you watch just how easy it was for City, like the space that their men had on the ball, but also the fact that people like Bernardo Silva were roaming into areas of two and three Manchester United players his teammates were picking him out with absolute ease. And then he was just shifting the ball on. Nothing extraordinary. Nothing creative or inventive. Just a very simple receive and, and give. But by the time he'd given the ball, three United players were now looking at him and not looking elsewhere, not following the, the ball, not tracking runners. If If Pep had really wanted them to turn things up, City probably win that game 6 or 7 now. That's how much of a gap there was between the two teams. And I'm not even talking about the chances that De Gea saved in the first half. I'm just talking about the second half, where it felt like City would get to right at the point where they were about to create a big chance or get a shot on goal. And then they pulled it back. And they went all the way back and started over again and just very calmly and very methodically worked through their different patterns of play and almost came up with new ideas on the pitch. Like if I run here and you run there, what if we give the ball to him and he's making that run? And you could see the City players talking to each other throughout the game and the United players just looked completely shell-shocked. Looked like they had no business being on that same pitch. There's times with City where you watch them play and you think this isn't a patch of what they were a couple of years ago. But there's also times when you watch them play and you just think, it's almost like they're playing with their food. Like 
It's almost like they've become bored of Premier League competition. Last season, there was moments like that. And this season, maybe that's in part what it is. Maybe they want to make it a bit more interesting for themselves. But you just feel like they, they, unlike anybody else in the league, that they play within themselves and that there are levels that they could go to. Now, whether they actually have the capability to get to those levels, I don't know. Maybe the limitations are the limitations. Rather than being self-imposed, maybe they just they're just there because certain players aren't of the right standard. I I don't know, but watching them against United, it was just it was like watching, it was like watching at a kids' sports day in a primary school when the 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 teachers would play the students, and the teachers, you know, would be grown men who'd play at half pace. Well, this was them playing at full pace. And rather than playing like the oldest kids in the primary school, they were playing like the infants. That's what it was like. They were just so far above United, so far beyond anything United were capable of. It was incredible to me. And, United just looked like a team that really didn't have a plan. Defensively, the flat-back five was absolutely stupid because City manipulated it. Foden went and stood on Wan-Bissaka and forced him to stay wide on the right, which creates this massive amount of space for Gundogan and for... Canseo coming from left back. Gundogan should be Bruno Fernandez's man. But Bruno was forced to go and try and deal with Jao Canseo. And he didn't do it very well. But he was forced to try and do it. Which meant that the right side centre back. Eric Bailly. Was left to try and handle. Ilke Gundogan. It was ridiculous. Oli is doing as bad a job as anybody in the Premier League right now. And I don't just mean in terms of the game to game. I mean in terms of building a squad, developing players. Rashford has hit a ceiling. Greenwood seems to have stagnated a little bit. He's still an immensely talented player, but he just seems to have leveled off a little bit. Now, I do expect there's a lot more to come from him. Sancho, it's obviously been a disaster. The latest head of Old Trafford is... Well, they're considering playing him at wing-back, which, I mean, you know, it just makes your head hurt to think that somebody somewhere is getting paid a lot of money to come up with the idea of Jaden Sancho at left at right wing-back or somebody else who's also getting paid a lot of money is, you know, telling journalists, well, this is what we're thinking of doing in a way to justify a bad transfer. I think it was Jonathan Wilson that said that if you swapped Greenwood, not Greenwood, if you swapped Grealish and Sancho, they'd be, be both be better off. And I was thinking about this the other day. Sancho would be, of course, because he'd be at City. And I do think he fits into how City play better than Grealish. I'm not sure Grealish is any better off. Because where's he playing? Left wing? 
ahead of Rashford, ahead ahead of Marcus Rashford, ahead of Paul Pogba? Probably ahead of Pogba, not ahead of Rashford. Can't play as the 10 because they have Bruno. Isn't going to get the opportunity to be bowl dominant because they have Bruno. They bought Grealish and they had Bruno. They'd have to play Pogba in a two if they wanted to put him on the pitch, which is a disaster in itself. No, no, the best place for Jack Grealish was Aston Villa. That's where he'd be better off. And City'd be better off as well. They'd be 100 million better off if they hadn't bought Jack Grealish. Jack Grealish would be at home in Birmingham uh, doing his thing, probably still under Dean Smith. And, you know, none of this would have taken place. Um, But regardless, United, there's no plan... The pieces don't fit together well enough. You know, you, when you saw Maguire there for the first couple of years, you thought, right, they need, they need a centre-back with real pace next to him. And Varane was the name that came to mind because obviously he's been a top-class centre-back. He, he is a quick centre-back. But he's lost some of that pace. He's not quite of the level he was. And Maguire has actually gotten slower. He has actually gotten slower over his time. At Manchester United. So you can't play a high line. If you can't play a high line, you can't press. You can't press effectively. You also can't press effectively if your number nine doesn't press at all. And Cristiano doesn't run. So Oli wants to play a pressing style. Their fans, when he's sacked, want them to bring in someone who plays a pressing style. But they can't because Cristiano's not capable of it. Pogba is not capable of it if he's in the team. But even without him... Maguire's not capable of it because they can't play a high line. So those pieces don't fit. If you did my little exercise from yesterday about the the players that Oli has bought, you will notice that what he has not bought is any midfielders. None. No central midfielders at all. Two number 10s, a bunch of wingers, a couple of strikers, some central defenders... A couple of fullbacks and Tom Heaton in goal. That's what he's bought. No central midfielders. 400 plus million spent. Central midfield, shocking when he took over. And he has allowed that to fester and get worse. So there's no midfield. How are you going to press without midfield? How are you going to press without midfield? Please tell me this. It's going to get worse before it gets better because it'll have to get worse for him to get sacked Could because clearly losing 4-2 to Leicester, 5-0 at home to Liverpool and 2-0 at home to City in that manner is okay. Clearly that's okay. The away record that had been holding him up for so long is gone. The home record under him has been tragic. Um. Things are not things are not rosy for United and aren't going to get rosy for United without major change. And I don't mean Ollie. I'm talking well above Ollie's head. I'm talking the entire football side of your company, your organization, your club needs to change. You've got inept people who are unqualified. You've got jobs for the boys. And you have not one competent person 
not one working on the football side of things. You've got a guy who's your head negotiator who agreed a deal where you spent £80 million on Harry Maguire. You've got another guy who was a good player, not a great player, a good squad player, who's your technical director with no track record in that role. I should have pointed out that head of negotiations, same guy paid fifty million for Aaron Wan Basaka. You know, this is this is not a well-run club. I saw, uh, I think it was Kieran Maguire, Price of Football, had a graph up yesterday, the day before, that showed where United's money has gone since the Glazers took over, and. The net transfer spend is at like 1.17 billion or something ludicrous like that. And they're always obviously heavily criticized for taking money out of the club. And for years, they were taking out ludicrous amounts. Now, they still do, but the transfer spend would have been set to pass the money taken out of the club, I think in like 2024, that's when they were on track to do that. might have been earlier. But because they sold some shares recently and they earned some money from that themselves, that's you know kept that as the, the main source of where things go. But their spending has just been so reckless. So, so reckless. And I don't know how they fix it without without putting a structure in place. Because you could put any manager you want in there, and it's not going to work. Because those above the manager are are not good enough at their jobs. I, I still, I will never understand how they went shopping for a right back and a centre back with £130 million and came back with Aaron Wan-Bissak and Harry Maguire and no change. I will never, ever understand how that happened. How could you look at Van Dyke and then look at Maguire and think, yeah, he's worth more than him? Van Dyke had set the bar for what a great centre-back was. He's better than Maguire at absolutely everything. And you paid five million more for him than Liverpool had play, paid for Van Dyke. Staggering. Absolutely staggering. We'll move on then. Newcastle United. Uh, I don't even know where to start with them this year. So they finally have a new manager in charge. Eddie Howe is the man in the seat. He took over on Monday. He has taken his first training sessions. He's had his press conferences and all that kind of good stuff. But now he faces a massive task. Bottom of the table, five points from 11 games. No wins, the only team in the league without a victory. Beaten by West Ham, beaten by Aston Villa, drew with Southampton, 
a game they probably should have won, but gave up that late penalty to Ward-Prowse after St. Maximum had scored in the 90th minute. Hammered by Manchester United, but did give them a game for an hour. Decent draw with Leeds. Came back from behind as well, so a good show of character. Uh, disappointing draw with Watford because they were ahead, but Watford are in around the same place as them, so it's a solid enough result. Uh, beaten by Wolves, beaten by a bad Spurs team. 1-1 draw with Crystal Palace was a good result, especially to come from behind. Uh, obviously lost to Chelsea. No one expects them to get anything against Chelsea. Uh, but a good point against Brighton, again, coming from behind. So look, they have, on three different occasions, come from behind to get a draw, which shows at least a little bit of fighting spirit. Defensively, they are a disgrace. 24 goals conceded, second worst in the league. But they have scored 12, which, while not great, isn't awful. It's not like the five that Norwich have mustered. But the task at hand here is huge. It really is. The only notable signing in the summer was Joe Willock. He hasn't performed anywhere close to the level he played at in the second half of last season when he was there on loan. He has missed some games. He's had some injuries. Uh, but it hasn't been what they would have hoped for. Um, all in all, it's been a disaster. There's no real, real way around this. Newcastle season so far has been a shambles. And you can look at every single you know department on the pitch. Goalkeepers, there's been injuries, there's been bad performances. The defence, there's been injuries, there's been appalling performances. Midfield injuries, appalling performances. Up front, it bar St. Maximum, he's the only Newcastle player this season who can walk around with his head held high. Every one of the rest of them should be ashamed of what they've put forward as effort and desire this year. Now, there is the fact that Dubravka is yet to play this season, but he didn't play this first what, two-thirds of last season either? I, I don't know what Jamal Lewis has done wrong, that he's not the starting left-back, because he is a much better left-back than Matt Ritchie, who isn't a left-back. Jamal Lewis is a very good left-back. You know, Shelby's been disappointing. He's a senior player. You'd, you'd expect something more from him. He's been there quite a while now as well. Uh, Isaac Hayden, to his credit, hasn't been bad. Not as good as he was last season, but not bad. The Cuz seems to be out of favour, out of form. A couple of injuries as well. Um, not really sure what's going on with a lot of this squad. You know, it just... It's not a dreadful squad of players. You know, Emil Kraft is a, is a decent international right back. Uh, like I said, Lewis is a good left back. A couple of decent goalkeepers. They need centre backs. That's an absolute certainty. They need uh, one in midfield, I think, to partner Hayden. Play Willock and maybe Almiron on the wings or play Willock as part of a three with Almiron in front or Almiron in a front three. So Maximin and 
uh, Wilson and maybe you can get away with doing something like that. But they need no, no one needs to buy in January more than Newcastle. Nobody. There's not one single team that has one single need that is more prevalent than Newcastle's need to just go and buy footballers, players that can actually improve your team. Definitely a couple of centre-backs, probably one in midfield. You might want to get one in up front. In fact, you might just want to go and buy an entirely new eleven, but it wouldn't have time to gel quickly enough. And nobody wants to go play in the championship, so you'd end up with a nightmare on your hands come summer. Their next 10 games, bringing them up to and including their game against Southampton on the 2nd of January, will decide the future of Newcastle Football Club for the next 18 months. Because, next two years, I should say. Because if they do not pick up, I would suggest a minimum of 12 to 14 points, then you can write them off. They're done. And they should not buy anybody in January if that's the case. If you are not in a position where you can at least drag yourself out of this mess on the 2nd of January, do not buy anybody. Because players will look at that and think, okay, I'll go to Newcastle for 100 grand a week. They will not agree to relegation clauses. So you will go down and you will continue to play them, pay them rather premiership money. Now, I know they can afford it and all that good stuff, but there's still no guarantee that you can buy your way out of the championship. Lots of teams have tried. Look at Derby County. Derby County are about to get deducted another nine points for their financial irregularities on top of the 12 they got for entering administration. And now Derby County are almost certainly heading for League One. They're on going to be on minus three points, despite having taken 18 points this season. And 18 points, while not a great return, would keep them out of the bottom three. Bottom four, maybe. I think they'd be fifth from bottom. I think they'd be fifth from bottom. Um, either way, Newcastle need to be careful. I know you've got all the money. You still can't be stupid about it. If you're not on 17 to 19 points after the game on January 2nd, at which point you'll have played 21 games and have 17 left, if you're not on 17 to 19 points, do not buy anybody. Just turn it in, accept your faith. And start looking to move people out. Start looking to get rid of bigger contracts. Do it in the January if you have to. Sell at maximum. You'll probably get a bigger price than you will in the summer when you go down. They have 10 games to save themselves. Because I think if they get to January and they're still a mess. The only thing they can do is put themselves in a bigger mess at that point. If they get to January on 10 points let's just say they get five points from the next 10 games they're they're done they're not going to stay up but 17 to 19 and if you look at their run it is possible it is doable coming out of the international break they get brentford at home 
then Newcastle away, then Norwich and Burnley. I think they need to take seven points from this four-game spell. Three of those games are at home. Brentford, Norwich and Burnley are all at home. Arsenal's away. I I think out of those four games, they need to take seven points. That leaves them needing five to seven points from the next six games, which is Leicester away, Liverpool away, Man City at home, Man United at home, Everton away, and Southampton away. I think they need to take 12 to 14 points from that 10-game run. And to do that, they're going to need seven from the first four. Because you wouldn't expect them to get much against Liverpool or Manchester City. Leicester away. If Leicester are anything resembling their best, Leicester will beat them. Manchester United, maybe there's a possibility of a point. Everton away will depend on where Everton are at the time. But it's not an easy run. It really is not an easy run for them. I think they need 12 to 14 points. And if not, we can start to write them off. Uh, We'll move on then to Norwich. Uh, So the news is that Frank Lampard looks like he could be getting the Norwich job. Um, They've had a fairly terrible start as well, obviously. Bottom of the table. Um, Started the season with six straight defeats. Lost to Liverpool, lost to City, lost to Leicester, lost to Arsenal, lost to Watford and lost to Everton. Now, starting the season, you would have looked at that Watford game and thought, that's the one to try and win. You wouldn't have expected anything from the first three games, though to their credit, they were good against Leicester. The Watford one was a massive disappointment for them. I think that was the one they were kind of banking on getting three points from. Uh, after the six-game losing streak, they drew it, uh, drew at Burnley and drew it home with Brighton. Then they got tonked by Chelsea. They lost a close game to Leeds at home. A bad goalkeeping error. And then they beat uh, Brentford in their last game. Five points. Manager gone. Daniel Farker did a great job at the club over his four and a half years. And I think he'll very quickly find work whenever he wants it. I don't like the appointment of Lampard because I don't think he's a good manager. But in the championship, he wasn't bad. He wasn't bad at, at Derby. So maybe he can go down with Norwich, bring them back up, get things turned around and maybe... The next time they're in the Premier League, they'll actually be a Premier League calibre team capable of staying up. There's not a whole bunch to say other than, you know, you've lost eight of your 11 games. That is in all likelihood going to, when you start that badly, it's going to be near impossible for you to turn things around. You see, I know they've got, Uh, Newcastle on the same points tally but they're already five points from Watford and Villa who are 16th and 17th the bigger issue there is that 
they've got 14 goal worse different uh, goal differential minus 21 to minus 7 for Watford minus 6 for Villa so they'd have to win two games and hope Watford or Villa lost two games those same agains and then match the results the rest of the way just to catch one of them and that doesn't take into account that Burnley may do it and go above them anyway it doesn't take into account Newcastle Newcastle's goal differential is not as tragic as what as Norwich which is why I think they have slightly more of a chance but I also think with Norwich there's just a a bit of an acceptance that they're going back down I think Lampard is very much an appointment with an acceptance that he's going that you're going down now if they could get the 12 to 14 points I suggested for Newcastle then maybe they can have a run at the second half of the season in fact you know they might need a little bit more because they won't have the big budget to go and buy difference making players in January you know they've got Southampton at home Wolves at home they're both winnable games both are playing well but neither are unbeatable Newcastle away it's a big game for both teams and then Tottenham again try and take seven points from those four games try and take seven from four then you get United at home then Villa at home that's a winnable game then you go to West Ham you get Arsenal at home Crystal Palace away Leicester away I think they'd probably need 14 minimum 14 minimum to have a chance of staying up and I don't think they'll get them I think if they have 12 points yeah 12 points by you know the Leicester game I'd be surprised I think, unfortunately for Norwich, I think they're going back down. It's a shame. It's a club I do like. There's some good players there. There's absolutely some good players in this squad. And, you know, I, I don't think their business in the summer it was all that bad. Rashika, I really like. I think if you go down, he's going to light the championship up. Angus Gunn, he's a good keeper. He had a bad time at Southampton, but there's talent there. He needs confidence to get himself back to where he was when he was at Norwich the last time. Giannoulis, impressed last season on loan, has not been great this season. Gibson's, I think, has been okay. Leeds Malou has shown, shown signs of being a, a decent player for them. Josh Sargent works really hard, but by God, he's not very good in front of goal. Christian Solis is a good player. Christos Tolis, Solis, I should say, is a very good young player. But they spent a lot of money on him. And, I mean, is he going to get you the goals to keep you up? No, and that money could have been spent on somebody that might have got you the goals. They brought Billy Gilmer in on loan. He hasn't impressed. Brandon Williams has been on loan. He's been okay. Matthias Norman has been good. Uh, Ozan Kabak has been a mixed bag. He needs He needs a run of games in a two. Next to Gibson. Not Hanley. He needs Grant Hanley needs to be left out of the team. Grant Hanley has been 
largely shocking this season. I, I'd struggle to name three worse centre-backs in the league than Grant Hanley in general, but this season especially. He's just not a Premier League calibre player. He's a good championship defender who can't play at this level. It's as simple as that. I think Norwich need to start to be less loyal to people like Tim Krul, who, again, I don't think has played particularly well this season. Hanley, who clearly isn't of the level. Um, I mean, Pukki's got three goals, but has he played well? I, I, I don't think he has. Kenny McLean is playing a lot. Again, he's a very championshipy type player. He wasn't good the last time they were up, and I don't think he's been particularly good this time around. I'd rather see them try some of these new players, try something different. Maybe Lampard will do that, but I, I, I think you could put Jurgen Klopp there, and he, I think he'd struggle to keep them even relevant, let alone keep them up. Um, it's a shame because, like I said, they're they are a club I like. They're you know, they were one of my favourite non-Liverpool teams to watch in the in the 90s when they had a lot of fun players. Uh, Rule Fox, Chris Sutton was there, uh, Jeremy Goss, you know, just the cool jerseys. They had that European run. They were just fun. And they, I've always loved the stadium. But right now, they're the 21st best team in England every year whatever division they're in I, I think if you look at the championship right now there's probably a team in it that are better than them and that would be Bournemouth but next season the championship they'll be the best team in the championship and I think that's they're in that 2021 area whereas they need to get into that top 18 17 that top 17 you can get into that top 17, that's where you want to be. Then you're going to be a Premier League club. For now, they'll remain a yo-yo club. Uh, we'll finish up with the gossip and get done. Paul Pogba wants to renew his Manchester United contract, but he is demanding he overtakes Cristiano Ronaldo to become the Premier League's highest paid player. Cristiano earns 500000 a week. Pogba earns three fifty. Pogba has done nothing to suggest he warrants that type of money. Nothing. It would be peak banter-era United if this happened. It won't happen. It won't happen. Uh, Six-time Ballon d'Or winner Lionel Messi could be set for a move back to Barcelona despite having only quit three months ago. No, it's garbage. I think he's seven-time now, isn't he? Didn't he just win it again? Uh, Barcelona, who cares about the Ballon d'Or? Why would you put that in? Why would you just not say Lionel Messi? It does. He does. He could be forty-time winner. It wouldn't make any difference. He could be one-time winner. It wouldn't make any difference. He's still Lionel Messi. Uh, Barcelona are preparing to bolster their forward line with Raheem Sterling, Edinson Cavani, and Timo Werner all being considered. This is a journalist throwing stuff at a wall and hoping something sticks. Uh, Leicester manager Brendan Rodgers 
is believed to have a clause in his contract that allows him to leave the club if a Champions League club makes a move for him. Wouldn't surprise me. Juventus are eyeing up Adrian Rabiot in the January transfer window. I would hate to... I love Rabiot as a player. By all accounts, his representation, nightmare to deal with. Uh, Newcastle may find it difficult to loan or buy players from Premier League clubs in January because some top-flight clubs do not want to do business with them. Foolish top-flight clubs do not want to sell them players. Smart top-flight clubs will rip them off for every single red cent they can get. Uh, Liverpool are lining up a triple January transfer swoop. No, they're not. Not even slightly. Super agent George Mendes is wooing Fulham's 19-year-old international midfielder, youth international midfielder, Fabio Carvalho, and trying to fix him up with a move to Liverpool. Uh, Great. Yeah, great. Fiorentina forward Dusan Vlahovic remains a priority target for Juventus. It'll be a two-year loan with an obligation to buy, won't it? It just will. That's what it will be. Bayern Munich scouts have been watching West Brom's 17-year-old striker, Reyes Cleary, who has scored 14 goals in 12 games this season um, for the West Brom under-18 team. Oh, and, and for in the Premier League too. Um, I don't know much about him, to be honest. It's such a shame. It's a really good academy there at West Brom. But there seems to be no pathway through to the first team and they never, ever get to take advantage of their most talented young players. Uh, Denmark defender Andreas Christensen has told Chelsea fans not to worry about his future. I think he'll get that deal done. Uh, His future hinges on whether or not the impasse can be broken uh, over the terms and length of his contract. I assume it will get done. I really do assume it will get done. And finally, Juventus have offered... Aaron Ramsey to Roma on loan. Right. Yeah, I'd imagine the response that got. We will leave it there, folks. Once again, pushing for the hour and a half podcast today. Uh, I don't know why. It just is what it is. Tomorrow, obviously, we will have the last five clubs in our Premier League review. So we are 15 clubs down, five to go. And tomorrow, we will run through the remainder. So we have Southampton, we have Tottenham, we have Watford, we have West Ham, which I can tell you now is going to be a love letter to David Moyes, Thomas Suchek, and Pablo Fernandes, and then Wolverhampton Wanderers. Uh, So that will be the five for tomorrow. And uh, we'll also have whatever news and gossip and whatever else is there. So I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.